everybody, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekend host of what is the world's largest distributed and subscribed to weekly leadership podcast. We are delighted now to be approaching our 150th episode, and today we have two people who are literally going to rock your world. These are the authors of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Humor Seriously, which is also, believe it or not, a legitimate four-credit class at Stanford. <laughs> and today we are joined by Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis. Welcome to On Leadership Ladies. Hello. Thanks for having us, Scott. Yes, so happy to be here. Now, which one of you is the smart one and which one of you is the smarter one? Uh, it's probably pretty obvious from looking at us. Is the it? Just look. Is both. Look at the hair. Which one looks smarter? I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Ladies, it is an honor to have you both on. This book has just debuted in the last few weeks. It has sort of swept the literary world by storm. Several number one bestseller status and categories on Amazon. Wall Street Journal bestseller. Probably one of the biggest books written in this space between, you know, sort of serious business intentions and bringing levity and humor. In fact, the basis of the book really is kind of talking about this dichotomy that is the balance of levity and humor. We're delighted you both joined us. What I'd like to do before we get into the book, the nature of your course at Stanford, and these leadership competencies that you're going to reinforce today, I'd like to invite you both maybe to give us just a few minutes on each of your backgrounds. Jennifer, you're on the right side of my screen, so I'll uh, talk to you first. Jennifer Ocker, talk a little bit about your background and reintroduce our audience, viewers, and listeners to your journey that has led you to co-author this book with Naomi. Yes, so my journey is this. Never have been funny, never wanted to be funny. Funny for me was equated with clowns and rubber chickens and whoopee cushions. Not very efficient tool in your career. It's certainly not something that we, you know, I got my PhDs at Stanford, and so you don't really learn that as you learn, you know, um, behavioral science as, as I did. So um, that's how I spent the large majority of my um, life until, um, you know, about eight years ago, I, I had created a book called The Dragonfly Effect with my husband, Andy Smith. And the intent of the book was to help people harness the power of story and social networks to make positive change. And in that moment um, of time when launching the book, I met a guy named Amit Gupta, who's the CEO of Photo Jojo, um, a, a startup. And he was diagnosed with, with leukemia and was looking to harness the power of story and social networks to find a match um, for him so that he could have a bone marrow transplant. There was no match in the bone marrow registry for him. And so we worked with him and, as well as 12 of my students. And what was so amazing um, in this incredibly serious moment uh, which is not fun or funny, um, he leveraged humor. He had these BYOSA parties, bring your own South Asia to bars in New York and lofts. He um, had comedians, Aziz Ansari and Chris Pratt, actually um, create little PSAs to give a spit about cancer. And in the course of a very short period of time, we got over 100,000 people in the bone marrow registry. A perfect match was found for him. And there was matches found for countless others because of this. And it was shocking to me that humor, in his case, was not a distraction. Um, in fact, it actually fueled it. Want it made people want to, you know, work on this campaign together. It bonded people. And I went from being shocked 
he was using humor to surprise that we are, aren't all doing this, even in moments which are very great. Jennifer, thank you for the intro. Naomi, uh, walk us on your journey as well. I came at it from probably the opposite side of Jennifer, which is humor was always really important to me to in a degree that was like annoying to everyone around me. I was voted class clown of my high school and it was a real value in my family. So my, uh, my grandparents during the depression used to put on skit nights in their basement for all of the neighborhood kids. Um, you know, my growing up for every birthday, someone got a custom song written about them that was ridiculous and hilarious. And so, especially in the hard times growing up, there was this incredible value around humor that the, you know, the wasted day is that in which we have not laughed. So every day we're going to laugh. And then uh, I went to work and everything changed. So I started working at a large consultancy and I thought that I had to act a certain way in order to be successful, especially as a young woman in business. And that was serious, pristine, austere, uh, not at all anything having to do with humor. And so I started leading essentially a double life where by day I was coaching executives and climbing the ranks in my organization very quickly. And then by night I was doing improv comedy. I was going to comedy shows with my friends. I was performing at indie theaters. And this all sort of came to a head for me when one day a client made a totally offhand comment to me, uh, which it was a Friday afternoon. And she said to me, uh, Naomi, I bet I know exactly what you do on your Friday nights. And I, which is a weird comment from a client. I said, okay, Bonnie, what do I do? And she goes, I, I bet that you go home, you hang out by yourself uh, and you watch History Channel documentaries while <laughs> re-ironing your blouses for the next week. Like no semblance of a personality or of any fun. Not that that is a bad life. It just wasn't mine. And so it was this realization for me of, I was totally incongruent inside of work and outside and at the same time, I had this realization that, oh my gosh, actually bringing my sense of humor to work not only could help make it more sustainable for me, uh, help me feel more authentic, have fun for goodness sake with my colleagues, but also it might be a very real competitive advantage for me. And so that's where I started on this journey. And then of course, Jennifer and I crossed paths and it's been a love story ever since. Well, Bonnie may have missed the description of your life, but she sure described my life for the last year, which is basically watching <laughs> the History Channel and ironing my shirts every night because I haven't left the house in a year. So welcome, ladies. Do you have ladies. a cat? Do you have a cat? It, is a cat named Do cat? I look like a cat guy? I mean, come on. <laughs> Do I look like a cat guy? How insulting, cats. Okay, Jennifer, uh, let's talk a bit about the premise of the book. It really is an effort between the two of you to debunk this dichotomy between gravity and levity. I I've worked at the Franklin Covey Company for 25 years. This is an enormously reputable firm, the highest level of character and competence. I am honored to be associated with this brand. We are not a funny place. I wouldn't even really call it a great fun place. We're mission driven. We love and respect each other. We are very focused on our client's outcome. But I, you know, I would call it, you know, it's a place where it's, if you're fun or funny, then you're probably not serious or smart. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a fair statement of a lot of companies. Walk us on this path of how the two of you came to be debunk this dichotomy between gravity and levity. Absolutely. So one of the things we find is that there's these myths associated with humor. First, 
I'm not funny. Well, we have actual data to suggest that you, and at Scott, we just abuse you of that notion that you are, don't have humor because you've already like landed four jokes before this interview. Um, and so even in places that see, take themselves very seriously and the work that they do with clients very seriously, humor can exist. Um, also, humor is not the same thing as being funny, which I'll get to in one second. Um, but um, it's really important to know that you can you know, take your work very seriously, but not take yourself too seriously. And that myth, this serious business myth, this idea that using humor or levity in the context of business would actually detract or um, in, impede your goals, you know, your progress toward your goals is in fact flawed. We have um, data to suggest that, you know, leaders that use, uh, that have a sense of humor, any sense of humor, just a sense of humor. And this is again, different than being funny. It's just a sense of humor are 27% more motivating and admired that in leaders that use a sense of humor at work are often, uh, they often enjoy higher perceptions of respect and status, as well as are seen as more competent and confident. And importantly, this research has shown that that happens even if there's a laugh line that is not good. So even if these leaders use humor, that's not good. As long as it's not inappropriate, it actually serves you well. And teams that work under these leaders are twice as more creative and creative tasks. You also see huge health advantages at a moment in time where mental health has been on the decline. This is really important. So Scott, there's one study that shows, um, it actually tracked Norwegian individuals. Um, Norway, not a country really known for its sense of humor. And um, ask them a simple question, you know, do you have a sense of humor? Uh, any sense of humor. And those individuals who said yes ended up on average living eight years longer and were 30% more resistant to severe disease. So the benefits from a physical angle are significant and a mental health perspective are significant and it's free and we're leaving it on the table. It's underappreciated and underleveraged. You know, when I first read your book, a visceral memory came to mind. I've mentioned I've been in this firm for 25 years, had an amazing career. I am an unabashed evangelist of the Franklin Covey Company. For six years, I served as the general manager of our Chicago region, uh, running a, a large business division. And the Atlanta division, the Southeast division, was run by two guys. They had to have two men to equal my intelligence in the central region. But what was great about the two guys that ran the Atlanta office, Mark and Chris, who are still very revered in the company, they were riotous. Whenever I would go down to their office for a team meeting or a general manager meeting, they were laughing and cracking jokes and just riotously laughing. And in the Chicago office where I ran it, it was a morgue. I mean, I ran a morgue full of productive but live people. And I used to always leave kind of jealous, but I would come back and I would uh, not lighten it up because it wasn't the culture of our firm. Naomi, what advice would you give to people like me that feel like they don't have permission, that maybe the culture is so buttoned down or stayed to, to um, implement the right level of humor? We're gonna talk about the four types of humor in a moment, but how do you give yourself permission, Naomi, in a culture where the, maybe it's not as free to be yourself and to bring humor to the workplace. Yeah, I think part of this, and, and you as a leader in this situation, right, you have a lot more leeway than perhaps Correct. people who are more junior to yeah. you. So I think for you as a leader, it's recognizing that there is real ROI on this for you, that your ability to, by the way, you're having fun on weekends. 
you're definitely having fun on weekends. And that's what the data shows that people are laughing, they're smiling, they're having a good time on weekends, and then they come to work and they completely shut it down. Right. So this is not you like pulling something from thin air and becoming someone you're not. It's just being a more coherent, cohesive version of yourself, authentic version of yourself. And so, all right. So how do you overcome this hurdle as a leader that that you shouldn't have humor at work? Number and I think it's to first and foremost know what the benefits are. So number one, humor increases our power. It enhances other people's perceptions of our status and influence. Jennifer mentioned it makes us more motivating. Uh, and it influences other people's behavior and decision-making. People make different decisions if we have some lightheartedness. Number two, bonds. We know that humor quickens the path to trust and self-disclosure. So Dick Costolo, the former CEO of Twitter, used to say that he uses humor so that his people feel safe sharing things with him that are going to be important information for him as the CEO to know. Right? He says, listen, my job isn't to prevent bad things from happening. It's to cover things up once they do. It's to fix things once they do happen. But if my people don't feel safe enough coming to me and sharing those bad things, then we're in big trouble. And so for him, humor was a leadership skill to build trust and to have his people feel comfortable coming to him with even with bad news. Third, of course, creativity. So we know that humor primes our brains for connection. It makes individuals more likely to solve creativity challenges. It helps people feel psychologically safe enough to share wild and bold ideas that are going to end up being the ones that no one else at other organizations are coming up with. And then finally, resilience, which of course is more important now than ever, that we know when we have laughter, even just the anticipation of laughter. So if you, if someone walks into that room, your office, and they know that they are not going to be laughing versus if they walk into another office and they expect that there's going to be some laughter in the room, what happens is their cortisol goes down their epinephrine goes down, and therefore they become more resilient, more creative, and they're able to bounce back more quickly to setbacks. By the way, Scott, I don't believe for a second that you ran a non-funny office. So well, you can tell us that, but not going to believe it. Well, yeah, that was a humorous mark for sure. Um, we almost had a visit from Jennifer's dog. I saw that tail oh, wagging back I, there. Did you see Did you see how I'm like, take the dog yeah, out? I saw, yeah, I saw that, remove, Jennifer. I'm calling you out. Remove the dog you know, out. Naomi, I appreciate your consideration that I might have fun on the weekends. I did prior <laughs> to getting married and having three children. And they just stole the fun away from me on my weekends. Now it's mowing lawns and doing laundry and cleaning up their, their spills. J Jennifer, let's talk about the four styles of humor, including the fifth being you know, canine um, serendipitous, serendipitous entrance. Um, the first one is stand-up. Talk about how you define the first style of, of, of humor stand-up, what, what are the positives and perhaps negatives of that style? Absolutely. So stand-ups, they're bold and outgoing. Um, they're not afraid to, you know, ruffle a few feathers to get a laugh. They often use humor um, as a form of intimacy. So if I tease you, it means I like you. Yeah. Um, so think kind of Amy Schum Schumer or maybe Eddie Murphy. And as a result, um, one of the downsides of this humor is, you know, it's fun to be with them. They're often, you know, the light of the, you know, a party, but there is downside. So you can imagine some of the risks associated with using humor, especially right now during a moment in time where there is a lot of sensitive topics that need discussing. Um, you know, you're more likely to actually say something that's, you know, potentially inadvertently inappropriate, offensive, um, or alienating. And then the second one is, um, uh, a sweetheart. Sweetheart, the sweethearts yeah. would never do that. They would never 
you know, offend or, you know, take a risk, you know, that might actually hurt someone um, and their feelings. Uh, but they're earnest, they're honest, they uplift, you know, they might be um, not necessarily known as being funny, but their sense of humor comes to life in kind of more nuanced ways. Um, so I'll go down downsides in a second. Let me go to the other two. Um, then there's a sniper. They're edgy, they're dry, they're nuanced. They're the deliverer of that, you know, that zinger that you you often like, you know, here in a meeting. And so their humor doesn't necessarily uplift or take others down per se, but it often is used to make a point. Like they see something and they're going to go in with that one liner. And then there is the magnet and they tend to be affiliative and kind of boisterous, um, sometimes even like silly. And uh, they're very charismatic. They're more likely to create very inclusive um, environments, which is one of their significant benefits. I will stop for a second and show you a, or invite Naomi to, who is definitely a magnet in her core, although she ships across styles, to just do a little magnet kind of stuff. Naomi, can you share? This is, oh, um, all right. So magnets, so magnets are gonna be like a little more fun, a little goofier. They're gonna have, <laughs> magnets have a lot of shoulder movement going on. Whereas uh, from standups, you're gonna get a lot of finger pointing. Snipers, you're gonna get a lot of like sitting back and a zinger. And then sweethearts are gonna be smiling and really generous with their humor. They might not be the funniest ones in the room, but they are gonna bring a lot of levity. All right, Naomi, so didn't you just enjoy that little? Well, like, I did. I, I can see Naomi as a break dancer back in the in the eighties or something. Naomi, look I, at I those can, shoulders. That was so very natural that, to you. That shoulder movement. Wow, I <laughs> yeah. so appreciate that. And I'm gonna tell you, no one wants me to see me on a dance floor, okay? Because what you just saw, those are like my best moves, uh, sitting or standing. Naomi, so many great stories in the book. The book is funny. The book has gravitas. Of course it does. It has a four by four matrix. You have to have a four by four matrix to have a, you know, an intellectual book. You, you talk about finding your Apple moments and you mm. share a kind of a touching story. Would you take a few moments and recreate this idea about finding your Apple moments? Sure. So this was actually <clears throat> early in our research journey. We had just spent two days at the Second City Theater in Chicago doing this immersive comedy experience with 10 behavioral scientists across the country. And it was after that experience, so we were really primed for humor at the moment. Uh, we go to the airport, O'Hare Airport, Jennifer and I part ways, and I go do something that is completely unremarkable, which is to buy an apple at an airport bodega. So I go to the um, front of the line because I see that there's this waxy pyramid display of apples and I'm actually not sure if they are for sale. So I go to the front of the line just to say, hey, you know, are those apples for sale? She looks at me and she goes, yeah, they're for sale if you get in line. Really harsh. Okay. So I go, all right, no problem. I'll get in line. Go back in line. And I just watched this woman um, who was behind the counter and she was really curt. She was yelling, snapping at the people who were coming up in line. She clearly was had had a really bad day, right? I don't know what's going on in her life, but, um, but she was really sour. And so I got to the front of the line and instead of saying, can I have an apple? I simply said, can I please have your favorite apple? And she paused and she looked at me like I was crazy and said, what do you mean my favorite apple? And I said, well, there's this huge pyramid display. So just whichever one is your favorite, I would love to buy that one. And in that moment, everything shifted. It was bizarre. She had the, sl the smallest smile. 
Then it turned into her looking for the apples and then she was digging through. And then a couple people behind her in line were like, oh, like, what about that apple? What about that apple? So now we're all laughing together. We're all digging through the apples. And finally she picks up two and she goes, okay, these are the two best ones. I've done my research. Like these are the ones, which one do you want? And I said, I don't know. It's not my favorite apple. It's yours. So she looks at them, she picks one and she hands it to me and she's smiling. And I went to pay and she said, that's okay. You know, I don't, I actually, I don't charge for my favorite apple. And as I'm walking away, I just look back at her and she's smiling and she's smiling at the next person in line. And there's this fundamentally different energy. And so what we tell our students and what we write about in the book is that's what we hope to create in the world. We're not trying to create stand-up comedians. We're not trying to have you tell the perfect one-liner. We're trying to create these Apple moments where we fundamentally shift the way that we interact with the world and the way that it interacts back. So that's those Apple moments is really what we're going for. Naomi, thank also you. Also nutrition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Jennifer, there's this... Um, find balance, is there not, between what I might find lighthearted and humorous or even riotous and what someone else may, very, may find um, diminishing or offensive or complaint-worthy. I'm sure this is not a new question to you. What advice do you give to leaders, colleagues, business professionals to kind of find their groove, know their audience, to deploy the, the valuable aspect of humor in the workplace and recognize that it's an intense time. It's a litigious time. People are generally pretty sensitive these days. What advice do you give us to find our groove? Right. So one of the basic um, sort of rules of thumb or, or principles that guide our class is no malice. And so the intent when you use humor, at least in these more trusting environments like our class, is you know just in, the intent is no malice. Um, and then it, it kind of starts from there. So never punch down, right? So don't take on someone lower levels of status. You can punch up, but not punch down. Um, understand how your humor style lands. So for example, the risks associated with being, for example, a stand-up or a sniper um, are significant right now, especially if you're in a large room, you don't understand how to read the room in, in certain contexts. And so shifting a style toward potentially more magnet um, or even sweetheart are, are, are actual strategies that are both authentic to people, but also really smart to do. Because that type of style, like for example, the magnet style often uplifts others and creates this feeling of inclusion. And then there's also, you know, like from a more tactical perspective, if there is something that, you know, was an overstep or an oversight or a joke that didn't land or a humor line that wasn't well received, you know, a couple of different options. One, you know, if it was just something that was like slightly over the edge and you kind of get the sense that it did not land, you know, more often than not, it often actually helps to call it out. So, you know, you could sort of, you know, speak to the truth of that moment and say like, hey, I'll be here all night or, you know, hey, that one didn't land, let me try another one, that kind of thing. And just diffusing the situation. And then in other contexts, you know, when, when more sort of egregious um, you know, um, missteps were, were made. We also have an entire day, an entire chapter um, in the book, chapter seven, uh, that gives people frameworks and tools to be able to better, A, not make that happen, and B, if it does happen, how do you actually recover? Naomi, on that point, when, when humor fails, and you say something and it's outright, it just lands flat, or perhaps you said what you were thinking and you shouldn't have, and you thought it was funnier than it was, Welcome to my entire career. What <laughs> advice do you give someone that 
you know, did not intend, their intent was not to diminish or offend, but clearly your delivery of it, your style, your timing did not land well. Naomi, what's a good recovery technique for someone in the moment to maybe take responsibility for it, make light of it, and maybe deflect or move on? Yeah, so I wanna say two things. First, uh, I'm gonna give a tactic, and second, I wanna talk about the importance of calibration, because you're hitting on a really important point especially for leaders, Scott, that we lose our calibration. So first, what to do in the moment. <clears throat> As Jennifer mentioned, there are two kinds of humor fails. One, totally benign. You use some humor, it doesn't land uh, just because it's appropriate, but maybe the joke was just too lame. <clears throat> in that situation, double down, right? Oh, well, that one didn't land, or oh, not my audience today, or like, I promise I will never do that again, right? So just acknowledging in the moment will often get a laugh, and that's all you need. Now, if you do cross a line, if something doesn't go well and you know that maybe you've stepped on some toes, acknowledge it right away in the moment. And, and more importantly, lean in and figure out what you did wrong. So I'll give one example in the book that we give is uh, Thomas, who is the CEO of a large media company. He had to let someone on his executive team go. In the first meeting of that executive team that she used to run, he walked into the room, he recognized that he was feeling uncomfortable and he wanted to diffuse that tension and so we'll call her Sarah. He said, Sarah, over to you. Because she normally runs that meeting. Now, Sarah was not in the room because he had just fired her. This was not a good joke, right? The entire room went silent. Everyone was really uncomfortable. And in fact, someone even stood up and said, I don't think that was very funny. So Thomas in that moment did a 180, which is exactly what you should do. He acknowledged it. He said, I'm so sorry. He genuinely said what was going on for him, which was, I made that joke out of a genuine insecurity because I had to let her go and I haven't come to terms with that. And then he said, can I please start over, right? And they said, absolutely, you can start over. He started over the meeting and he said, hi everyone. <clears throat> First, I wanna recognize that Sarah's not here today. Let's take a minute and talk about what impact that's gonna have on our team and on our workloads, right? And he went forward. And so it sounds cheesy, but humor can be such a live wire for people because it has so much context wrapped into it. And so when you do fail, when you do cross a line, it's so important to acknowledge it and genuinely apologize. <clears throat> the second thing I wanted to mention, Scott, is around calibration. Now this is critical because as people rise in status in an organization, they a couple of things happen. One, they lose their calibration for what's funny because people laugh at high status people because of their status, not necessarily because they're funny. So if you tell the same absolute lame joke, like lame dad joke to two groups of people, <clears throat> tell one group of people or make one group of people believe that you are uh, their peer or even someone of lower status than them, you'll get crickets. Tell that same group of people that you are a high status individual, make them believe that you're high status and you're gonna get roaring laughter. And so for leaders, these opportunities when you fail are so critical for us to recognize what are our pitfalls? What's, what's going on that we need to actually improve? Um, and then of course, the other thing as Jennifer mentioned is when you rise in status, your playing field narrows because you can no longer punch up everyone who you look around you. If you're making fun of them, you're punching down. So you have to fundamentally look for different things to joke about. Naomi, superb advice. Our, our time is coming to an end. Jennifer, I'd like to ask you a, a kind of a last question around sarcasm. Uh, my wife Stephanie and I both come from, from families where our father's communication style, their humor style is both sarcasm. Great fathers, great men, people that are both still alive and we love and respect them. And like I said, their 
their default communication style is sarcasm. And it's not healthy. And it has a diminishing <laughs> impact. And, and I'll tell you, it has taken its place in my own style. I, I, and I don't like it. What, Jennifer, from your research and background, would you, would you say about sarcasm? And for people who are self-aware enough, or perhaps now maybe have an epiphany about their style is sarcasm, when should that be deployed? When should it not be deployed? How do we generally manage that sarcastic um, go-to style? Yeah, so um, a couple of things to consider. First, if you don't know what style you have, just go to humorseriously.com and take the quiz. And data will tell you. Genius what plug! You are. Look at that, man. They are both marketers. They're oh authors. They're PhDs. <laughs> Do you see that? They're humorous. Do you see? Look at that. Um, <laughs> at twenty twenty one ninety nine is the book. Humor seriously. It's at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and wherever books are sold. Um, oh, but what were you saying, Scott? You're, oh, it was a question. I was. I think I was plugging your sarcasm. website. So yeah. yeah. Sarcasm. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> no, we got that out of the way. Um, it is true, though. Sarcasm does, you know, co-very co-linger uh, with uh, with sniper style. So it does help to kind of like identify yourself and also buy the book. And then what you want to do is um, be able to understand when is that sarcastic style actually useful or not. So to your question, you know, I bet if your wife's dad and your dad get together, they have a great time. Like they can use sarcasm to the nights, you know, till, till it becomes night. And so just, you know, having trusted friends and or other people who really love that style and where it actually does create this affiliative bond, right? Um, and so that that's one place to actually keep, you know, for sure, keep using it. And then the second thing I would say is just better understanding what your secondary dimension is for even highly sarcastic people. You know, they might have a secondary dimension of, of being a stand-up like you, Scott, um, or, you know, <laughs> you, Scott, um, or, you know, magnet, et cetera. <laughs> and so being able to lean in and shift your style in different contexts with new people or people you don't know very well is another great strategy. Ladies, you have proven that you can be smart and fun, that levity and gravity can coexist. I thank you both for your time. The book is Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a secret weapon in business and life, and how anyone can harness it, even you. I secondly apologize to all the cat lovers out there. Um, Naomi <laughs> led me down that sordid path. And Jennifer, Naomi's thank fault. you. Wow. Jennifer, thank you for your dog's um, partial appearance. Naomi, uh, great conversation. Thank you both. Ladies, great success to you and to your ongoing course at Stanford University. You don't need my... Um, Recommendation of the book, but I'll tell you, everybody, it's a great balance of, as a leader and a professional, how do you bring uh, your humor style out for the benefit of building a great culture where people bring their whole selves to work? Ladies, thank you again for your time. I know you have back-to-back -back interviews for your book launch. Congrats on your success, and perhaps we'll see you back here for your next book as well. Naomi, thank you. Jennifer, thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye, Scott. And thanks for joining us, everybody. Great book. I encourage you to pick it up. Humor Seriously by Jennifer and Naomi. And we'll see you back here for another interview next week on leadership.